Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Bob Batchelor, the author of Stan Lee, The Man Behind Marvel. Bob, thanks for joining me. Oh, great to be here, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So I'm wondering if you can start by talking a bit about why you wrote this book. What got you started on this topic? Well, from a larger perspective, I like writing about topics that are really big. I like to write about topics that um, touch millions and millions of lives. So in the past, I've written uh, books about The Great Gatsby. I wrote a, a biography of Bob Dylan, a biography of John Updike. So as I was looking around for potential subjects, Stan Lee jumped out at my editor and I, uh, Stephen Ryan at Roman and Littlefield, because there aren't many people alive today who Stan Lee hasn't influenced in some way. So I like to tackle these big subjects because I love cultural history. um, And it just so happened that I had been a huge Marvel fan and been reading comic books really from um, almost the beginning of my life, I guess. Uh, I taught myself to read at about four, maybe a little older so that I could read Marvel comics. I had an uncle who had a big stack of Marvel comics, and I just used to look through them. And I think the combination of Sesame Street, Electric Company, maybe a little Mr. Rogers and Stan Lee uh, got me into reading, and that facilitated my love for writing. So the book's really been like a labor of love across my life and and something I really enjoyed doing. So you start by... By sort of introducing us to Stan Lee before he was Stan Lee, right? So Stan Lee Lieber and New York and sort of the impact and influence of New York during the time he was born and raised. And so can you talk a little bit about that sort of early life of Stan Lee? Yeah, I think that's something that past biographers and people who have looked at Stan Lee have kind of glossed over to a to a bit. Um, I liken Stan Lee uh, a bit to John Updike in the basically they're around the same age. They grew up in the Great Depression. I had a great aunt who grew up in the Great Depression. And from reading accounts of people who grew up in that era, you see a lot of similarities. Um, with Updike, you know, he never saw a dollar that he didn't want. Um, he always worried that his last or his next writing gig would be his last. And, and this was deeply, um, implanted on them by their experiences growing up in the great depression. And so as I looked at Lee's life, you see the same thing. His mom actually pushed him ahead in school so that he could get out into the workforce earlier. He knew that college was not an option for him. Um, Lee had basically worked his entire young life because 
the then you know the Lieber family uh, they had no money and they were basically kept afloat during the Great Depression by generous relatives um, and other means that uh, one might not associate with somebody as famous and wealthy and, and interesting as Stan Lee now. Uh, but that impact of the Great Depression is really important, as is the experience of growing up in New York City. Um, so many of the early comic book creators were based in New York City. They had similar experiences. Many of them were um, Jewish immigrants or from Jewish immigrant families. So there's a lot of cultural relevance from Stan Lee's early life that plays directly into his larger worldview as he was would develop as a young person. Right. And that's one interesting thing that you mentioned that um, and you talk about how when he starts creating superheroes and when he starts writing for comics that he bases his characters in New York, right? In the sort of real world as opposed to this sort of imaginary made up space. Yeah, I think that's really important because it gave Marvel Comics and Marvel superheroes a basis in reality that attracted people's attentions. Um, in my own case, for instance, I grew up, you know, from a pretty poor family in Western Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh. But to me, I could still envision New York City and imagine what it might be like from reading Marvel comic books. And I can say personally that I read DC Comics. I, I read every comic that I could get my hands on as a kid. But Marvel spoke to me because it was based in a place that actually existed more than the Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman comics. Um, and the fact that Stan Lee spoke to me in those comic books made it even more um, impactful. I felt like there was something really cool and interesting going on in New York City in the Marvel bullpen, and I wanted to be part of it, and I wanted to know more about it. And and so um, whether Stan Lee is the luckiest guy in the world or the craftiest by, by figuring out how to make kids like me um, want to know more about him and his, his artists and, and writers, uh, I'm not sure exactly where, where that line's drawn, but, but it's pretty phenomenal that he was able to pull this off. And so in your book, you sort of walk us through his career, starting with as a teenager working for Timely Comics and being an assistant there. And so can you sort of talk about those beginnings of Stanley's career and, and sort of what he was doing right away? Yeah, um, there's some controversy over how Lee got to Timely Comics. But what we know for sure is that Martin Goodman, who owned the company, the magazine company of which Timely Comics was a division, was a distant relative of Lee's. And he liked, Goodman that is, liked to surround himself by family. So uh, some of Stan's cousins and, and uncles and such worked for Goodman. Um, as a high school graduate, Stan Lee's first and foremost goal was to get a job. He was a young, young high school graduate. Um, and 
depending on who you believe, either his mother's cousin or a newspaper ad got Lee to Timely Comics just as it was basically opening, um, just as uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby had introduced Captain America through Timely Comics. And so Lee comes in basically as a young teenager, fresh out of high school, and he's basically uh, initially little more than an office boy, you know, kind of, if you can imagine, filling the inkwells for Jack Kirby and uh, going out and getting coffee for various people in the office um, and basically doing whatever Joe Simon asks him to do. Um, those are pretty amazing times. You have three really important figures uh, in comic book history, uh, all young guys. You know, Lee's the youngest as a teenager, but Kirby and and um, Simon are also in their early to mid twenties. So it's a pretty exciting time to be at Timely, really, almost at the birth of comics. Certainly, the birth of of Marvel superheroes, and um, Lee is there from the beginning. Right. And so he's there and it, it's, he becomes really important, right? He becomes this person who is able to write and produce more work than anyone else um, or faster, right? He's doing a lot of editing um, and allowing him to hone his craft there. And then we have the war that comes along, right? And 1942. So he ends up, can you talk a little bit about then what happens when he joins the army and, and how he sort of moves from timely to the army and, and back and forth? Sure. Yeah. That's an important um, aspect. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because in talking to fans and interviewing Marvel and Stanley fans, I realized that most self self-identified fans, they really didn't know almost anything about Lee or his past. And I really felt that was a shame. I mean, even I've talked since the book's been published to some people who who are nuts for comic books and and could, um, you know, tell you what's on the fourth page of the 50th issue of, of Spider-Man. Um, they actually know more about the details of comic books potentially than I do, but um, they don't know anything about Lee. And, and this early era, Lee, by the time um, there, there's some shenanigans that are also controversial that happen at Timely. Um, Simon and Kirby are basically moonlighting for DC, the main competitor, the, the industry's kind of gold standard, because Martin Goodman isn't paying them the royalties that he promised on Captain America. So basically, Goodman's. Um, family members just basically fired uh, Simon and Kirby after issue 10 of Captain America. They looked around and there was nobody left in the comic book division except Lee. So if you're the last man standing, you become the boss. And Lee at a very young age, maybe right around 1920, is suddenly the editor-in-chief of Timely Comics which sounds grandiose today, but if you think back to what publishing was like in the early 1940s, this meant Lee had to basically write all the books, edit, um, hire the freelancers. Um, he had a small team, a production team, which he had to also oversee. And what this early period 
um, means for Stan Lee is that he becomes a, a really a one man operation. He's able to do every facet of uh, the comic book production business. And this kind of establishes him for the next several decades when he's just, he and what becomes then later Marvel Comics are just churning out, you know, dozens and dozens of comic books every month. They're on strict production um, uh, deadlines. And this work ethic which I think is born out of his experiences, the Great Depression, really establishes who Stan Lee is. And many comic book historians, many comic book aficionados don't give this period uh, of Stan Lee's personal development enough attention. So that's why I talk about it quite a bit in the book. When he turns then, he enlists in the army um, because he's you know a patriotic guy, he's a young guy, he joins the army and um, tests into um, basically a, a division in which they're going to be stringing lines across Europe. I mean, f- telecommunication lines, and and the Signal Corps is a part of the army where you know a lot of smart people are are using their intelligence to learn the the mechanics and the actual you know rubber meets the road experience of putting you know stringing lines across battlefields and things so that so that there can be communications um this is what lee trained for but when his superiors found out that he was a writer and editor they decided to use him instead in the signal corps propaganda unit essentially um and he becomes one of less than 10 people in the entire army with the designation of playwright. And some of the other playwrights are very famous names. Uh, a guy we might know by the name of uh, Dr. Seuss, Ted Giesel, um, Frank Capra, several other really famous um, playwrights and authors and, and film, film people. Um, and so Lee is creating training manuals and um, other documentation for the army. Because if you think back to World War II, you had millions of people who were coming into the army across, you know, thousands, thousands and thousands of jobs, many of them with no training. You know, if you think back, probably, uh, you know, a majority didn't even have a high school education, let alone a college education. So they had to be trained and Lee's particular skill was that he could use um, comic book characters, uh, comic book illustrations, and pretty simple language to reach these uh, these recruits. And the infrastructure training was so important to the to the United States because, um, you know, you can imagine somebody, uh, you know, kid who grew up on a farm in Iowa has not much schooling, no, no, you know, not even a sniff of college suddenly has to learn to, um, you know, use a a very intricate piece of machinery for the war effort that takes a lot of training. And so people like Lee and, and, and the propaganda unit that he worked for in the signal Corps were, were, you know, incredibly important to the overall war effort. Right. And, and it also seems that because he has this connection, he sort of stays with Marvel. It really helps him when he returns. So after the war, 
the comic book industry is booming, right? And there's less paper restrictions. So Lee returns to Marvel and sort of uses what he's gained from the war and before to sort of to bring it back into the workplace. So can you talk a bit about that return and what was happening with the comic book industry at that time and what Lee was able to do after the war? Yeah, thankfully for Lee, um, as opposed to Jack Kirby, who served in the front lines, um, Lee stayed stateside and he continued to freelance. Um, It's difficult. There are not a lot of records that exist from that era, at least not a lot of records that that are easy to access or, or potentially open even to researchers. But I, my gut instinct is that Lee was essentially the de facto editor, even while he was in the army. I mean, he had a successor, a friend of his name, um, Vince Fago, who took over in the office. And um, yeah, so Marvel is booming. Um, people wanted a diversion. So just like with uh, some popular literature, um, that that kind of gets a rebirth during the army because the army's given out free copies. It's the same kind of situation with comic books. People both overseas, whether they're fighting or on bases or creating infrastructure and people at home, they all wanted a diversion from the war. Comic books were an easy diversion. And so they really boomed in popularity. What this does for Lee is... Um, keeps him in the know in terms of what's going on at Timely. It gives him um, a second means of income, which is important, you know, as a, as a poor kid, he's never really had more than a couple nickels to jingle together in his pocket. And suddenly he has the money to buy a car. He can, um, you know, uh, travel around a little bit while he's in the service. He, he, he works on a, a number of bases it also, you know, reinforces that great era depression mindset in which, you know, you work your tail off and and plan for your future success. And so Lee is working full time for the army. He's a fast worker and he's working also churning out comic books for for timely. So um it's important for him because he can kind of step right back into his role as editor in chief when when the the war ends and he's discharged. So the transition is smooth for him back into the comic book industry, which is still booming at the time. Um, very very uh, profitable business in that era. Right, and it's during this time, right after the war, that Lee starts to hone his craft right you talk about how he's starting to play with creating dc had created the justice society of america so then lee also starts to combine some of timely's heroes together to create a super team and how lee is starting to think about that his own brand right and there's this move from timely to starting to think about the name marvel or um goodman you mentioned is talking about variations of the name marvel so can you talk about that sort of move into lee coming when we get to this point where lee comes in and um starts to create his first sort of super team and that kind of thing 
Yes, definitely. I think this is one of the most important aspects of Lee's career that people don't really think about. Um, Lee from the late 30s through 1960 is really kind of just grinding away in the comic book industry. I mean, except for that, those several years um, in the uh, during the war, when he's in the war, he is a, a, a one-man show um, overseeing every aspect of the comic production. And I don't think enough study has been done on what Lee was actually doing during those years in terms of how much writing he was doing. Um, but there's anecdotal evidence that he was putting out, you know, sometimes two or three comic books a, a day over the course of, of weeks at a time. Um this apprenticeship kind of on the job trial by fire is really important to his overall development because he's learning to write really fast. He's learning to rely on his um, editorial team. And after the war in the early 1950s, the tide really turns against the comic book industry. Um, there's a psychologist, uh, psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham that that goes after the comic book industry in kind of sensational way, th linking comic books to juvenile delinquency. That gets the, um, the attention of several uh, congressmen and uh, senators, and it results in uh, hearings against the comic book industry because many comic books at the time were trying to retain their popularity through salacious material, you know, kind of horror story comic books with really gruesome, like beheaded people on the covers and things like that. Um, so during this time, Lee is really just trying to keep, to keep uh, timely afloat because people are turning their book burnings, comic book burnings are around the country. Religious leaders are turning against comic books. It's really, a, a, really quite a fascinating era. Um, so Lee is trying to hold it all together. He's trying to keep his freelancers um, working, even though there's a huge downturn in the industry. And this era in which comic books are really shaky leads up to the point uh, that he introduces the Fantastic Four, um, which really catapults Lee and Marvel to the place that we that we know they're at today. Right. Yeah, and you have this great story about how Lee and Jack Kirby sort of came up or talked through the Fantastic Four at the beginning of Chapter Six. And so, can you talk a little bit about that birth of the Fantastic Four and how that came to be and why they are so important? Yeah, I think the relationship between the great artist Jack Kirby and the great writer Stan Lee is one that produces a lot of controversy among people who are really into comic book history or really into um, comic books and the details of comic books. Um, it the, the sides get pretty knocked down, drag out fight at times, which is maybe would be odd to many of your listeners that somebody cares so deeply uh, about this stuff that they're willing to punch somebody else in the nose about it. But yeah, internet flame wars happen all the time, daily, probably dozens daily over uh, 
who deserves credit for things in the Marvel universe, uh, Stan Lee or Jack Kirby or what percentage, these kind of things. At this time, I think the most interesting thing in late 50s, uh, leading up to the introduction of the Fantastic Four, is that Lee and Kirby are both kind of desperate figures at this time. They are both kind of at their last chain on the on the on the rope toward you know who knows what they're they're desperate figures jack kirby has basically burnt his bridges at dc and marvel is his last chance to stay in the comic book industry and lee at this time as he's approaching 40 years old he's tired of the comic book industry the grind has kind of beaten him down and any of your listeners who have worked in in journalism, certainly for newspapers or or magazines, can probably relate the the relentless uh, work and deadlines over twenty year career um, have gotten Lee to the point where he wants to do just about anything to get out of comic books. So you have these two really desperate characters who who don't have anywhere else to turn. They decide to give it one last shot. And Martin Goodman hears about the the Justice League from some um, insiders who know about what's going on at DC. And he tells Lee to start a superhero team at Marvel. Um, Jack Kirby has introduced superhero teams in the past, and he he has ideas about a team that they could form at Marvel. And what Lee, I think, does that's so amazing is that he decides if I'm at the end of my rope, I'm going to do what I want to do. He's encouraged by his wife, Joan, take this last shot, see what happens. And if you get fired, you wanted to quit anyhow, we'll figure it out. So in this kind of last ditch Hail Mary effort, uh, Lee and Kirby come up with the Fantastic Four and you can tell by the first issue that they're really hedging their bets because superheroes are not popular that at this time and certainly no superheroes outside of you know the the grand trinity of wonder woman batman and and superman are really doing anything for any any other publishing company so the first fantastic four story is really uh, a sci-fi monster story mixed in with some superheroes and even you know we all know the thing kind of looks more more monsterish than superhero like so um these desperate uh creators kirby and lee come up with this idea and lee gives them human traits which is i think you know he's certainly thinking through the zeitgeist of the time if you look at the the popular culture of the late 50s and early 60s film television um novels you're seeing kind of the, you know, the reaction against the Eisenhower administration, the, the man in the gray flannel suit kind of impulse. And Lee brings this into comic books because his goal is for comic books to be accepted amongst a larger audience. Um, certainly teenagers, or if not adults, re- you know, he wants to grow the readership. So bringing all these influences together lee and kirby introduced the fantastic four and um lo and behold the the 
the comic book goes nuts. Um, fans respond in an, in a really amazing way. And that launches everything for Marvel. Um, suddenly, you know, a second or third or maybe fourth rate publishing company becomes a powerhouse. They can't yet rival DC in sales, uh, but they've set the course to to later become, you know, the, t- the top selling publisher. And what I thought was really interesting that you talked about throughout the book, and it sort of starts at that time that we get to the Fantastic Four, is that what Lee did a really good job of was listening to those fans, right? So you talk about he is just inundated with fan letters and fan mail. And instead of just ignoring it, he decides to think about what the fan needs and creates this, right? We move into the the teenage superhero and we move into Peter Parker and how Spider-Man comes in. So can you talk a little bit about that relationship that he starts with his fans and, and, and Spider-Man and how he creates Spider-Man and the reasons behind that? Sure. Um, the Fantastic Four um, sparked readers to, to send in letters. And this had never happened at Marvel before. Uh, Lee tells a story about receiving just um, giant bushels of, of mail each week. And this had, on, this had never happened. The only mail that they ever had really received before is if you know a fan got a, a book and a page was missing or something, they'd get a complaint. But for the first time, the fans responded. And what Lee did, perhaps differently than, than most people would have, he listened and read all those letters. And this kind of insider information gave him a view of young people that perhaps other adults couldn't relate to at the time. And so he used this information and you, and you have to remember, this is a guy with no college education. He's just really bright and been working in comics for a couple decades. He figures out that if he listens to the fan and starts to tailor uh, what Marvel is producing to the fan desires, that something magical may happen. And so he introduces uh, the Fantastic Four they introduce the Hulk, Thor, some others um, start to develop. Uh, but the real change becomes um, when Lee is on the lookout for the next big superhero. And he decides to go against industry standards and create a superhero that is a teenager that has really acute teenager kind of problems because he knows that this will appeal to um, Marvel readership. And, you know, anecdotally, the story is that when Lee told his publisher, Martin Goodman, about wanting to do a book on a superhero named Spider-Man who was a pimply teenager, that Goodman basically threw him out of his office and said, no way, which forced forced uh, Lee to kind of sneak Spider-Man and the Spider-Man story into the last issue of Amazing Fantasy, a title that, you know, had been planned to be canceled. Um, But what Lee did is he took the idea that he had begun in Fantastic Four of these, these team members who had human problems, and 
he dropped them all onto this character named Peter Parker, who would become Spider-Man in the in the famous story that we all we all now know about being bit by the radioactive spider. And it's really Spider-Man, I think, his enduring popularity is because Lee pulled together everything he knew about superheroes up to that point and put put it into one character. Um, Peter Parker doesn't ask for his his powers. Um, he misuses them early, misuses them for, uh, you know, for 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 capital gains, for monetary reasons. Um, he has an interesting, compelling backstory. He's he's uh, uh, kind of a geeky kid. He's a weakling compared to some of his uh, more macho, athletic uh, classmates, and he's in Queens, which is you know intimately interesting. Uh, you know, you probably think at the time in the early '60s, if you just numbered the kids who lived in Queens. Um, and said, you know, one out of 10 will buy a Spider-Man comic book. You'd have a runaway bestseller just with, with that figure. So, um, Lee really takes everything he knows about, about comic books and superheroes, places them, um, places all those ideas into Spider-Man. Steve Ditko comes up with, uh, amazing kind of quirky drawings, um, and the book takes off and again, uh, Lee not only has the, the huge hit with Fantastic Four and, and some of the other superheroes, but Spider-Man knocks it out of the park and, and you know, almost from day one is on the way to becoming uh, the iconic character that we we all now know and people around the world know now right and one of the things that you talk about too coming back to you mentioned queens and and i thought that this was important that because lee sort of has all his superheroes exist in new york city they're able to jump back and forth to get and make guest appearances and comics and do that kind of thing. And so can you talk a little bit about that use of New York city and how that also helped to promote and influence what he was doing in the comic industry? Sure thing. Yeah. That's a very important point. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because when you see the evolution of Marvel comics, that team concept and placing the superheroes in New York City is is essential to the success. Um, so as I mentioned, Spider-Man is introduced in a comic that's planned to be canceled, but the reader response was so great that they decided we've got to give Spider-Man a comic book of his own. That first issue has him um, engaging with the Fantastic Four. In fact, Spider-Man wants to join the Fantastic Four because he believes that he can make money doing that, and he wants to support poor Aunt May, who's now a widower, and you know they live in a in a in a poor section of Queens. Um, so that interaction, you know, bringing Spider-Man into contact with the Fantastic Four, that that sparked young people's um, interest you know, beyond belief, because you had these superheroes um, swinging around a place that that either they lived or could imagine or had seen on television or in film, and then having them interact 
and getting to know one another. I mean, we see this carried through in Marvel to uh, the current situation. I mean, Spider-Man Homecoming, probably one of the reasons that that film was so successful was because of Robert Downey Jr. appearing as Tony Stark and Iron Man in that film. Um, People love seeing superheroes interact. And I think particularly the superheroes who are human and have human characteristics like in Spider-Man Homecoming with, you know, Peter Parker and Tony Stark, who are human beings who have been either created or, or, or given in some way superhero powers. And so they're still humans at heart versus, you know, Thor, who's a God or, you know, things like that. Um, so yeah, Lee really caught, caught fire here in terms of, understanding how fans would react to a a, a city and a a landscape that's familiar to them. And then also uh, getting these characters engaged right from the start. And you bring up Tony Stark, which is another thing that I found interesting or important that I wanted you to sort of talk about a bit, because it seems, and, and you mentioned this with the teenagers, but that he, also does this really nice job of sort of reading what's happening in um, both popular culture, but throughout the culture at the time, right? So Tony Stark comes in at this time when the Cuban Missile Crisis is going on, when there are these other issues that are happening in American culture that he is really reading really well and figuring out how to use his superheroes to respond to that. So could you talk a little bit about the ways that Lee does that? Yeah, I think Lee's um, real genius is that he does have his finger on the pulse of popular culture in the 50s and 60s. Um, He's able to use ideas and real life experiences in a way that promotes and and expands the storylines. So, for instance, in Fantastic Four, they they sneak off in a rocket and are, you know, um, infused with gamma rays and nobody knows what gamma rays are at that time, but it seems a lot like the nuclear stuff that's going on and the space stuff that's going on. And so Lee is able to bring this idea that people can wrap their minds around and use it as a central facet in the fantastic four. Um, people understand that there is radioactivity. And so a kid being bit by a radioactive spider, that kind of seems fictionally uh, natural, that, that leap. And I think if I, if I could spend multiple hours talking with Stan Lee, that'd be one of the main keys that I would want to try to get him to talk about. He has a notoriously bad memory And so I don't know how much of it he would remember, but my gut feeling is that Stan Lee was a voracious, um, you know, follower and, and, and reader and watcher of, of popular culture at, in that era. And he was able to then use it in a way that's, that, that was incredibly interesting. Um, he introduces Tony Stark, uh, and has him fighting in Vietnam, really, even before Vietnam becomes something that people understand. And so uh, it took somebody really intelligent, uh, likely to make this leap from real life 
via popular culture to the comic book industry. He was able to harness the skills and expand the skills of his artists because he built this great team, um, which included Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. So uh, it was pretty amazing what Lee was able to do. You know, at the same time, he's having to still run the company. He's still having to approve all the artwork. He's having to edit. He's ha- he's writing books. He's he's co-creating, co-plotting with his artists. These kind of things. So he's a voracious pop culture scholar, really, at that time, and and he's able to then transform it into new material. Right. And it also seems like he never sleeps, right? One of the things you talk about is like that he he never believes that this that this job is going to last, that the superheroes are going to stay around. So he's continually creating more and more and more superheroes because eventually he thinks he's going to have to move on to something else. So can you talk a little bit about that? Just the amount of... Um, the amount of I don't want to I don't know if the amount of superheroes is the best way, but the amount of like work that he produces and and how that comes out and sort of that sort of work mentality. Yeah, Stan Lee's an innovator in a number of ways. And and one of the innovations, you know, he actually gets criticized by by some people for creating the Marvel method. And basically the Marvel method is simply that prior to Stan Lee's creation of the Marvel method, a writer would give a complete script to an artist, and then the artist would follow that outline, really not making many changes. What Lee did, in, in partially because he had really great storyteller slash artists, but also because he wanted to keep freelance artists working, is they would talk through the plots, and then Lee would send them off. And when they got the the artwork back, Lee would then write in the story, write in the dialogue, write in the uh, words. And this, when we look back on it now, has created a lot of controversy for people who think Stan Lee took too much credit for what his artists were accomplishing. But when you look back on why this happened, it was for a completely different reason. And so Lee is running these plot conferences with his artists. He's writing books. He's overseeing everything. And Marvel is hamstrung by the number of books that it can publish each month because of a really bad distribution deal. It had to sign with a subsidiary of DC. Um, But still, it's an intense process. And Lee is at the center of all of this. Um, It had to have been a whirlwind and incredibly chaotic. It's my guess that this whirlwind chaotic nature of the early Marvel, particularly after they started having success, it contributed to Stan Lee's um, famous loss of memory because Things were happening so fast that there's no way that he could remember all the details. Um, when I went to the Stan Lee archives at the University of Wyoming, you see um, in those archives all the things that Lee was doing in addition to writing or editing. I mean, he's coming up with ideas for coloring books, and he's giving speeches at um, trade conferences, and he's doing all these things that 
stretch him so thin, it's it's hard to imagine how he did it all. I mean, I've spent a lot of time wondering how Lee pulled this all off and and the numbers and the 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 kind of things he were do, was doing at the time are mind-boggling. It's like sitting down and thinking about how somebody like Norman Mailer or Updike or or um other novelists, other famous novelists could actually produce the amount they produced, you know, when you just try to figure out how do you live a life and still live this level of productivity? Right. And so he's built up this sort of universe. He's built up this company and he's using merchandising. He's using all these ways as you talk about. And then there is a shift in ownership. Yeah. And so can you, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what that sort of what happens in the late sixties and what that sort of means for Marvel and for Lee? Yeah. Goodman, uh, Martin Goodman decides to sell and, one of the things that he promises Lee is that he'll take care of him financially based on the sale. And like so many aspects of Martin Goodman's career, that turns into kind of a, a, a shady, a shady response and a, and a shady outcome. He never really takes care of Lee. I think because the public company that, that buys Marvel they pay a lot of attention to Lee. They 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 spotlight him as the main person that they need to bring along in this acquisition. They see him as the head creative, which he actually is. You know, as if at an advertising agency, if it's bought up by a bigger agency, they want to keep the main creative um, staff because that's where the magic's happening. And so Lee gets a lot of attention. He gets larger raises, he gets more power, and Goodman has kind of shown the door. He's hoping that his son Chip will take over um, and that the new bosses will will see things the way that he does, but it's pretty clear that it's a transition to Lee being the, the head honcho of the comic book division, um, which interestingly pulls Lee away from the day-to-day writing and editing and forces him into some of the roles that he's done you know, part-time prior to, to the sale. So once Lee becomes, uh, less important in the day-to-day operations, he's able to then be transform really into almost a full-time spokesman, not only for Marvel, but the comic book industry as a whole, which is, you know, people will, if they're negative about Stan Lee, they'll say that he was just some kind of P.T. Barnum out, you know, trying to self-aggrandize. But when you look at the state of comic books and particularly what had happened in the 50s, Lee just wanted to bolster. I mean, first and foremost, obviously, he wants Marvel to be the top company, he wants to displace DC, but he wants success across the board. I mean, DC's success is you know, helps Marvel along and vice versa. So they're competitors, but the success of the industry as a whole is contingent upon Marvel and DC both doing well. And so that sale becomes an important um, point in Lee's career because he can now start barnstorming first the United States and then the world um, with the message of superheroes. And it really solidifies um the superhero genre for not only for the 
the tail end of the baby boom generation, but also for Gen X. So, um, you know, generationally, you have countless people who are influenced by Marvel based in one way or another directly by what Stan Lee is doing. Right, and then it's at this, because of this, he's able to sort of push against the comic codes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how he does that with um, bringing in sort of the um, Black Panther and the different things that he does to sort of push against the comic book codes because of this sort of power he's created or the space he's created? Yeah, Stan Lee was always, um, and if you if you look at some of the things he's doing, you know, even to today, Stan Lee is very much a compassionate individual and for human rights across the board. And so Marvel, maybe to our eyes, didn't act quickly enough in in introducing uh, minority characters or female characters. Um, but Lee did try this, and they did make some some early moves. Often, though, because one of the things fans forget and, and comic book historians forget is that Marvel is a capitalist enterprise. You know, Martin Goodman had his uh, eye on the bottom line. And if a, ma- if a comic book didn't sell, it was gone. He didn't give it much leeway. So... When, sometimes when Lee would try to introduce characters um, and and they didn't sell, you know, he was forced to move on to the next thing. Um, but as he amassed power, he was able to change the industry's thinking on a number of lines in that uh, 1950s downturn because of the the horror books. One of the things that happened is that a comics code was introduced, and basically there were certain things that comic book publishers couldn't do. Like, like you couldn't have, um, you, you know, you could never have uh, a police officer, uh, you know, shown, at, you know, murdered or something. And there were a n- number of other lines. There couldn't be drug references, things like that. Uh, the comic book industry followed those for the next almost the next two decades until Lee got requ- a request from the Nixon White House of all places um, to asking him to introduce an anti-drug line in Spider-Man that might awaken people's understanding of the dangers of drugs. Because in the seventies, people knew knew drugs were bad, but but it wasn't they didn't have as much information as we have today. And so uh, an enterprising official in the Nixon White House turned to Lee for some help. Lee ran some Spider-Man, several little Spider-Man miniseries um, that that was anti-drug and had a strong anti-drug message. Uh, in the early 70s, as a result, directly defying the comic book code, but the issue... And the popularity of Spider-Man were so immense that the comic book code basically had to back down. And after that, companies, you know, the publisher still, you know, kind of listened to the code, followed it to some degree, but it it broke down some barriers. It reintroduced monster magazines, which became really important in the, you know, popular in the early 70s, early to mid 70s. So... 
uh, Lee was able to, um, you know, use his influence and certainly the influence of Spider-Man to, you know, make this interesting move against the comic code. Um, but the publishers were basically smart enough not to go back to the to the gruesome levels that 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 the world had seen in the in the early fifties. So we have these comic books and and all of this, but then one thing that's really important, I think, and and you bring up and we see it today is the role of Hollywood, right? The role of film, the role of television. I still. I loved the Incredible Hulk growing up. That that was like it's still one of my those those like fond memories of watching the Hulk. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that, like how Lee and and how Marvel sort of came to Hollywood and the importance of television and film for this this lasting these lasting superheroes. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I love the uh I love the superhero types uh and the shows. I mean, some of my earliest memories are sitting in my grandmother's living room watching the old um Superman black and white uh episodes. I loved the Adam West Batman, I loved Wonder Woman. Um, I loved Lone Ranger. I had I had action figures. I mean, when I was a kid, we just called them dolls, but I guess action figures is the right way to term them today. Um, so there had always been success in getting superheroes on film and on television. You know, even dating back to radio times, the, these were great stories, and people loved to hear them. Marvel had some bumps, though. Um, Marvel, it didn't, it didn't seem could uh, capitalize on television the way DC had with the the George Reeves superhero or Superman stories and the Adam West Batman stories. For some reason, there was a disconnect between Hollywood and Marvel, and Lee eventually. Um, by the late 70s, early 80s, he decides to move to L.A. to um, more directly oversee Marvel's attempts at uh, moving into Hollywood. They had television shows that were animated, that were popular, um, even things like I remember watching uh, the Spider-Man sto- Spidey stories on Electric Company. And I, I used to wait all day just for that little three or four minute um, segment on electric company uh but in terms of big budget or you know first rate television shows marvel lagged behind and i think when i look back on that i think it was partially that the studios would buy the rights and certainly goodman had sold the rights for next to nothing and so when hollywood got the rights to these um to these characters they often couldn't capture the Marvel voice. And really, that's the Stan Lee voice. And so what made the superheroes popular in the comic books couldn't be easily replicated. I mean, you, you know, for decades, you had DC trying to replicate the, uh, the Stan Lee voice, and they couldn't get it right either. Maybe until you know the Michael Keaton Batman films, they finally were able to mimic Stan Lee. Um, but that's a total aside. But yeah, so Lee goes out to Hollywood and um, he starts directing the the efforts. And it took him it took him a long time. He had to lay the groundwork. 
Um, the early Hulk uh, television show that you mentioned um, was certainly a first step, you know, an early successful step. They had some awful miscues, um, a Captain America movie that was like Captain America was like a redneck Bubba version of Captain America and that several awful Spider-Man. So there were a lot of hit and misses, but while these hit and misses were taking place, people were still buying the comic books left and right. They were buying the merchandise. The idea was infusing. I think what it took was the youngest baby boomers and the oldest Gen Xers to start having some power in Hollywood, having some influence to then get the Marvel, um, the Marvel uh, voice and style. Right. Right. So he, we have this going on and, and moving Marvel to Hollywood, but you also talk about Stanley media and how there was Stan wanted to get involved in the internet and marketing himself, right? Sort of selling himself. And so can you talk a little bit about what happened with the Stanley media and sort of this rise and fall of that? Yeah, Stanley Media was um Stanley's attempt to capitalize on the uh the web and the the growth of the web. Um I happened to be in Silicon Valley. I worked in Silicon Valley at the, you know, at the kind of the the peak of the dot com craze and I stayed out there through the bust. So to me, writing that chapter on Stanley Media was really um fun. It brought back some good memories, some kind of scary memories. But what people don't really know, uh, if you weren't out there, um, there were a lot of shady people involved in the dot-com boom. Um, I don't think the definitive history of the the rise and fall of the dot-com era has been written. But when it is, there will be uh, many, many really shady, villainous characters that emerge from from that story. And... Stan Lee, unfortunately, got hooked up with one of those guys. Um, and, you know, together they they launched uh, Stan Lee Media because like so much of the um, dot-com boom, it was built on a foundation of, of air. <laughs> and Stan Lee's name could give uh, Stan Lee Media... Um, the backing that it needed to uh, to really make some sense. And so he hooks up with this guy named Peter Paul, who is essentially, I mean, if you read the court documents, and I, I want to be careful about how I phrase this because he's notoriously uh, lawsuit happy. So I don't want to say anything uh, that he might ever hear or, or you know, come after me with lawyers. But if you read the court documents and, and what happened to him is he ended up in jail for embezzlement. And um, so when the, I mean, the FBI is looking into this, uh, the, the local authorities, they, um, Paul and some of his associates built Stanley Media up, um, took the company public in a kind of a, a, a backdoor kind of way. At one point, Stanley Media is worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And through this embezzlement, poof, almost overnight, and literally almost overnight, uh, Stanley Media goes to essentially zero and is forced out of business. 
um, it left a trail of devastation, not only for those people that worked there, but it hurt Stan's reputation. Um, it hurt him personally. And so the challenge um, with Stanley Media is that Stan's reputation is hurt to some degree, but it's it's proven that he was manipulated. He, he doesn't come out of the situation looking good, certainly. Um, but it's quite a, a, a common tale during the dot-com boom and bust. And uh, unfortunately, Stan got caught up in that. Right. And so because of this, he does not want, he's, you know, at this time in his, right now he's what, in his mid nineties. So at this time he's in his early eighties. Right. And he does not, you know, even though he could have retired decades, literally decades ago, he does not want to end this way. And so you sort of end with talking about the ways in which he has made himself really important in popular culture today, right? Over the past 10 years or so, um, his role with having many of the fans of his now, as you said before, having um, roles in Hollywood, but how he's become part of popular culture. So can you talk a little bit about that, how he sort of created himself as a sort of cultural icon that we're all, you know, I hear the rumors that that in case, you know, he's getting old. So they've recorded him for the next like five. Um, I don't know if this is true or not. Five Marvel films that are coming out so that that guest appearance will still be there. Right. We're looking forward to where's Stanley going to be when we watch the Marvel film or these kinds of things. Can you talk a little bit about that? What's going on him now and what he's created? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, so Lee emerges from the Stan Lee media debacle in the, uh, you know, in the early 2000s. You can, you know, when you think about his work ethic from growing up in the Great Depression, how that carried through in his entire career, he's not going to be the kind of guy who retires. Um, he's, uh, you know, turned into a celebrity at the same time, you have, you know, generations of people who grew up on Marvel and grew up with Stan Lee as part of their lives becoming influential in Hollywood on and in television. And, and so it's kind of an interesting zeitgeist that as younger people who grew up on Lee are becoming influential, they're reaching out to him uh, more and more. And so he begins this. Um, series of cameo appearances in Marvel films. And I think it was just happenstance. I, I think it was a, a great accident that Lee began appearing in Marvel films and that turned into something incredibly culturally relevant to this day. And I think, you know, you're right. He's, he's filmed, he's filmed cameos well into the future. He'll be 95 years old uh, his birthday's at the end of the month on uh, December 28th, and he'll be 95. And so um, he becomes more or less, you know, the king of cameos. So he does cameos in television and film. Part of it, I think, is because so many tens of thousands of fans have met him over the years at Comic-Cons and, and different regional events. One thing, you know, if you ever 
get a chance to meet Stanley or for those of your listeners who have read him, he's incredibly genuine and compassionate. Um, so he comes off as a person exactly as he comes off in the cameos. Uh, incredibly self-effacing and interesting. And so I've been in theaters when the Stan Lee cameo comes on and the audience, you know, erupts in cheers and claps. And, you know, it's it's a pretty f- amazing thing to see whenever uh, whenever you experience that. I think Stan Lee has transcended, you know, the role of comic book writer, editor, art, art director, that kind of thing, to really become a cultural icon because so many people grew up with him. So many thousands and thousands of people saw him give lectures on campus, grew up with his work, that he he's able to transcend popular culture in a way that very few people are able to do. We've been talking for a while, so I'm going to ask you one last question about Stan Lee and then a question about what you're doing next. But do you have an idea of what you think? Does he have vision? Do you have an idea of like what he is envisioning next? Do you, th- do you think he has this, you know, he seems to not ever be stopping about thinking about, you know, doing something new. So do you think there's something new out there? You know, it's pretty amazing. I mean, right now, I just saw on Twitter yesterday, Stan Lee's in China. I mean, so he's always creating. Um, you know, I don't know if there's going to be anything necessarily new that he's going to create. I mean, he's done some interesting things uh, in terms of the last couple of years. He has some characters and some television shows he's been working working on or working with other people to to create. It's a challenge. You know, you think if somebody created something as influential as Spider-Man, you know, at what point are they ever going to stop or slow down? Or, you know, are they ever going to create something that great again? Um, And for Lee, you know, his career with, you know, the Avengers and and Spider-Man, I mean, it's been so fantastic that... I can't imagine that at 95, he has the wherewithal to create something that would be of that lasting importance, but I wouldn't bet all my money against it. Um, nor, you know, should I get, I guess, should we expect him to come up with another Spider-Man? I mean, some of his critics will say, you know, you know, he peaked in the, he peaked in the sixties when he was working with Ditko and Kirby. And that shows, you know, that he was never really much of a creator without them. But he has a long list of things that he's done and done well. Um, you know, how much how much can one person create that essentially changes the way people view the world? That's that's where I kind of think we should think in terms of Stan Lee. I mean, he's he's an icon that created characters that have changed the way the world speaks, the way that it views various narratives, things like that. So. Uh, I think he's going to stay busy, you know, up to the end. Uh, hopefully that end won't come anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So um, we've talked a lot about Stan Lee, which has been really great. Uh, is there anything you're working on right now that you want to talk about? Anything you want to promote? Or are you just sort of trying to get this book out there? Well, the it's interesting. You know, I'm never going to leave books behind. I, you know, writing is in my soul and, and, I'm working with uh, my agent right now on a new book proposal that uh, 
I think takes me back to my my own roots in in um, American lit at the you know in the early 20th century. So that's about all I can say about that. You, you know, I can't really talk about the the next project. What I'm really um, doing though, as well, is I've I've started working more with um, script consulting and uh, historical consulting, doing some of that work. Uh, I have a couple projects, you know, mo- most Hollywood projects are, you know, you have to sign a non-disclosure act. So I really can't talk about them except to say that um, for me personally, I'm really digging the fact that Stan, the Stan Lee biography and the kind of cultural history that I possess and have been working on building over the last 25 years seems to be paying off in in terms of you know there are some producers and directors who who want to you know work with me on some scripts and some some show ideas that I think potentially are pretty exciting so uh I'm not going to stop writing books but I definitely have caught the Hollywood bug a little bit I guess <laughs> so it's been fun wonderful well it's been really wonderful talking to you again this was Bob Batchelor who wrote Stan Lee the man behind Marvel Bob thanks so much for talking with me yeah certainly I think you know if I do one more second to promote I guess so you can always catch me I have a, a website um, it's just my name Bob B-A-T-C-H-E-L-O-R.com. Uh, I'm very accessible there. If anybody wants to, to write, tell me what they think of the book. I'm on Twitter. My handle is Cult Pop Culture. Um, and uh, I'm pretty active there. The book itself is available. The easiest way to get it is uh, Amazon, but certainly um, other ways as well. And, and, uh, it's selling well. The reviews are fantastic. So it's very uh, heartening to me as a writer. And, and I'd just like to thank you again, Rebecca, for having me on. This has been a, a blast. Thank you so much. <laughs>